Hello, everybody. I am John Allen, editor of Crux, and your host here on Last Week in the Church. This is the show where we sort through the flotsam and jetsam of the past week in terms of Vatican and global church headlines, separate the wheat from the chaff, and bring you what's truly important. Here's our rundown for this week. We begin with, you say it's your birthday! Pope Francis on Saturday turned 86, and in so doing, entered a 3% club among all popes in history. We'll break down what that is about. Secondly, you've got mail. The Pope reveals in an exclusive interview with a Spanish newspaper that he has already signed a letter of resignation in case of his medical incapacity, that he did so basically very early in his papacy and that it's still around someplace. We'll explain why that might actually be a bit of a head-scratcher for canon lawyers in terms of whether or not it's valid. Third, mea culpa, mea massima culpa, Pope Francis apologizes to Moscow for some rhetoric he used in another recent interview regarding ethnic minorities allied with Russia in its war in Ukraine. We'll try to break down why he felt it important to apologize and what that might be a down payment toward. Fourth up this week, the Pope and Russia, why the roots of Russia's antipathy to not just Pope Francis, but to all popes and to the Vatican generally, runs much deeper than the most recent spat. And finally, this week, a one-of-a-kind woman. As the Jesuits ponder the role of women in their worldwide religious order, we will resurrect the story, very singular story, of history's lone female Jesuit. All that and more is waiting for you this week on Last Week in the Church, so please stick around. All right, everybody, thank you for being with us. Happy Tuesday to you. And just as a kind of, you know, preview of coming attractions, Merry Christmas to everybody, because we won't talk again until Christmas next Sunday. We begin this week with something that happened on Saturday, a milestone moment for Pope Francis. It was his 86th birthday. Now, in and of itself, you might not think that that is particularly significant, but here is why it actually matters. By turning 86, while he is still in office, Pope Francis has entered fairly exclusive territory among popes. Over the last century, if we go back to 1922, when the papacy of Benedict XV ended, the average age at which popes have either died or resigned has been 78. No pope over the last century has managed to reach his 86th birthday while still in office. The last time that happened, actually, you have to go back to the early part the very early part of the 20th century, Pope Leo XIII, who reigned from 1878 to 1903 and who was 93 at the time of his death. In fact, over the entire past millennium, millennium, ladies and gentlemen, there have only been six popes who reached the age of 86 while they were in office. And in the first millennium, we don't actually have reliable birth dates for most popes by tradition. There is one pope, Pope Agatho, who, again, according to tradition, was 140 years old when he died in the year 681. 
Now that may be, uh, that may well be apocryphal. We don't have historical documentation for it, but even if we take it at face value, what that means is that from St. Peter to today, there have been 266 popes and only eight of them reached the age of 86 while they were still in office. That's eight out of 266, which is 3%, which means that Pope Francis is now part of a 3%er group among popes in terms of the age he has reached while still sitting on the throne of Peter. Now, under ordinary circumstances, reaching such exclusive territory in terms of age probably would beckon a lot of speculation about end games, right? We would be talking about, you know, how much longer can Pope Francis possibly go on? And there would be a lot of talk about who his successors might be and when the conclave is going to come. The, the striking thing is there is relatively little such speculation right now. Now, I think that is in one part because we just went through a cycle of that over the summer, didn't we? I mean, if you're a regular viewer of this show, you will know that the summer of 2022 was full of kind of guesswork and rumor and innuendo about a possible end game to the Francis papacy. This because uh, problems in his right knee compelled him to curtail his public schedule. He actually bailed on a trip to the Democratic Republic of Congo in South Sudan in July. He called a consistory and then two days of meetings with cardinals for late August, which popes never do that. And he also scheduled a trip to the tomb of the last pope to resign the papacy voluntarily before Benedict XVI. That was Celestine V in 1294. His tomb is in the central Italian city of L'Aquila. Putting all that together, a lot of us began trying to see some handwriting on the wall, right? Well, the thing is, all that came and went, and Pope Francis did not resign. And in fact, all indications are right now is full steam ahead for Pope Francis. I mean, not only is his trip to Congo and South Sudan back in the books, he's now going to be going January 31st through February 5th, but he's got a very full calendar otherwise for 2023. In terms of other trips, there is talk that he's going to put his trip to Lebanon that was delayed because of COVID back on the books. Also, World Youth Day is taking place in Lisbon, Portugal in August. There is every reason to believe Francis will be there. In addition to that, of course, he's got his much ballyhooed synod on synodality. The first summit of prelates is going to take place here in Rome in October, with a second to come in 2024. All indications are Pope Francis wants to see that process to conclusion. He's got the, recent, the implementation of his recent reform of the Roman Curia. And there's a lot of other stuff on his to-do list. And all of this is in addition to the fact that the Pope is focused like a laser beam on the war in Ukraine and the possibility that he and the Vatican might be able to play some role as a mediator or a peacemaker in that conflict. He's certainly not going to want to walk away while that conflict is still raging. And so, for all kinds of reasons, it is, not only is it reasonable to believe that we are not at the end game of this papacy, but we have no idea really how much longer this might go on. Now, I don't know where Las Vegas would set the odds that Pope Francis is going to rival Pope Agatho and reign until he's 104. That would be 18 more years, okay? I think the odds on that would be pretty long. 
What about Pope Francis reigning as long as Leo XIII? Could he make it to 93? He'd have to put in seven years and four months more for that to happen. Is that probable? I don't know. But I would put it this way. Is it impossible? Well, listen, ladies and gentlemen, if you don't think that on the Pope Francis watch, absolutely anything and its opposite is possible, you just haven't been paying attention. You know, this is perpetually a Pope of surprises, and he may yet surprise us with the longevity of this papacy. In some ways, he already has. So, Pope Francis, a belated happy birthday on your 86th. I think there's every reason to believe we'll be wishing you happy birthday when you turn 87. And how much more beyond that? God only knows. But don't sell this Pope short, I guess is what I'm saying. All right. Second up this week, you've got mail. Pope Francis has given yet another interview. Barely does a week go by these days without the Pope giving an interview to someone. Memo, by the way, to Pope Francis and his Vatican team. Crux may well be the only news outlet left on the planet that has not yet had its own exclusive interview with the Pope. We're ready anytime you are. Call us up. We'll be at the Santa Marta within five minutes. So we are perpetually ready to go. In any event, this interview was with the Spanish newspaper ABC, Abici. And in it, Pope Francis revealed that shortly after his election, he wrote a letter of resignation to be invoked in case of his medical incapacity. So if he were to have a stroke, go into a coma, somehow, for some medical reason, be incapacitated to such an extent that he was incapable of governing, then there would be a letter of resignation on file. And Pope Francis said in this interview that he gave that letter to the then Secretary of State, Italian Cardinal Tarsisio Bertone, who was the Secretary of State only for the first few months of the Francis papacy. He had been Benedict XVI's Secretary of State, and he hung around until Pope Francis had the chance to name his own guy, an Italian Cardinal Pietro Parolin. So therefore, we know this letter was written in the first few months of the Francis papacy. And we also know this is not the first time such a thing has happened. Pope Francis said in this interview, and it's a point that is well known, that Pope Paul VI, now St. Paul VI, had done the same thing. Paul VI had written a letter of resignation, which he gave to his private secretary, that was to be invoked in case he was incapacitated. Now, that seems like a very reasonable precaution. We all know that given advances in modern medicine these days, it is possible to prolong people in life well after the stage at which they no longer possess what we would consider the fullness of their faculties, that is, the complete use of their reason and so on. And so it is entirely possible that you could have a scenario that you have a pope with a progressive illness who, at a certain point, while still alive, no longer has the capacity to make decisions, to, to make his wishes known, to communicate that to anyone, and therefore doesn't have the capacity to govern. So this seems like a very reasonable, prudent thing for a pope to do, right? Here's why all of this is problematic. Because, as I say, we've known that Paul VI left one of these letters for decades. And for all of this time, it has been debated among canon lawyers as to whether such a letter would be valid should, you know, when the situation presented itself. And here's why. If you read the Code of Canon Law, it is 
Canon 332, paragraph 2, that governs papal resignation. And what it says is that in order for a papal resignation to be valid, among other things, it has to be given freely. In other words, no one can compel the Pope to do this. He can't be acting under external pressure. It has to be his own independent, autonomous, free choice. Now, here's the thing. Consider that letter that Pope Francis just told us that he wrote. We know that it was his will sometime around April, May, June of 2013 to resign in case he was incapacitated. How do we know that if he were incapacitated, say, if it happened tomorrow, how would we know that that was still his will in December 2022? How would we know that it was still his free, independent, autonomous choice in that moment to resign? See, when Benedict XVI announced his resignation, this debate didn't come up because he was still in full possession of his faculties. It was obvious that this was his own independent free choice. But how would we know that in the case of a pope for whom, by definition, somebody else has to pull the trigger on his behalf, right? That is the canonical quandary. And so while it is interesting to know that Pope Francis has left such a letter, it is not entirely clear that that letter would actually have binding legal value when it came, when the situation presented itself. There would probably always be debate about you know, whether it was valid or not, which might undercut the legitimacy of the next pope, which might make cardinals hesitant to invoke it. When the time came, we just don't know how that would play out. This is, of course, part of what makes Roman Catholicism so endlessly fascinating. So a lot of the time, we just don't know. All right, third up this week, mea culpa, mea massa mea culpa. Pope Francis issues an apology to Russia. This connected to a recent interview he gave to the U.S. Jesuit publication America, in which, among other things, he was asked about the conflict in Ukraine. And he said that he is well informed about the conflict and that one of the things that his sources tell him is that some of the greatest brutality in the war has been inflicted not by the Russians themselves, but by ethnic minorities who are allied with the Russians. And he mentioned specifically Chechens and Buryats. Now, that infuriated a lot of people on the Russian side. We heard from a spokesperson for the Russian Foreign Ministry who said not only was that Russophobic, but it was anti Christian. The Russian Foreign Minister himself said it was completely unhelpful and shocking to hear a pope using language like that. Representatives for both the Chechens and the Buryats also raised objections, both their political and also their religious leadership raised objections to these remarks. And in the wake of all that, it now appears that through diplomatic channels, the Vatican sent along an apology to the Russian authorities. And we know this because a spokesperson, the same spokesperson for the foreign ministry who'd originally condemned the Pope, later confirmed that an apology had been received, expressed gratitude for it, and said, you know, it is refreshing to see somebody in this day and age who can admit their mistakes, which was, you know, a kind of backhanded way of, I guess, saying thank you for the apology. Also, the, the Vatican spokesperson, Italian layman Matteo Bruni, also confirmed that this had happened. So, the Pope has apologized. Now, in a way, there's nothing particularly surprising about that, right? This isn't the Middle Ages anymore, 
when being pope meant never having to say you're sorry, right? I mean, we know that under John Paul II, John Paul apologized hundreds of times. I mean, he apologized as often as Pope Francis issues motu proprios, like all the time, like, you know, at least once a week. You know, a colleague of ours, Luigi Acatoli, great Italian Vatican writer, did a book about collecting all these papal apologies. I think he did that book in 1998. There were more than 100 of them. And this was before the great Jubilee year of 2000, when the Pope held that, you know, liturgy of repentance in St. Peter's Square, where he issued a bunch more apologies. So, you know, by this, and, and Pope Francis, just this past year, issued a bunch of apologies, right? I mean, he traveled to Canada, spent a week there, specifically to apologize for, in that case, for the mistreatment of indigenous persons in church-run residential schools. So, Pope's apologizing in and of itself has, has, it's lost his magic. It's no longer special, okay? But what makes this unique, of course, is that it comes amid the ongoing war between Russia and Ukraine. And it is another sign of the Pope and the Vatican's effort to try to remain sort of above the fray here, right? That is not to appear partisan in this conflict. So at the same time, Pope Francis is announcing that he wants people to forego expensive presents this Christmas and instead donate money to relief in Ukraine. At the very same time, he's apologizing to Russia for having gotten their noses at a joint, right? And this is part of his effort to seem even-handed. Why? Well, because the Pope wants to try to be a peacemaker. Look, if you were going to be the first Pope in history to take the name Francis, right? St. Francis, the famous author of Lord, make me an instrument of your peace, then I think if you're going to do that, then you are going to feel a special spiritual and historical obligation to pull out all the stops to try to end war, end bloodshed, end violence whenever you can. Clearly, Pope Francis is trying to do that to the best of his ability in the conflict in Ukraine. Now, whether it's going to work, we don't know. But I think you have to locate this apology as part of this broader effort. Now that brings us to point four on this week's rundown, which is deep impact. That the reason that I think you have to be cautious about the possibilities for Pope Francis or the Vatican to actually play a constructive role with Russia and Ukraine is because the antipathy that Russia feels, the ambivalence, in some cases, the outright skepticism, suspiciousness, and hostility that some Russians and some Russian Orthodox feel vis-a-vis -vis the Vatican, the roots of that go much deeper than anything Francis said last week or a couple weeks ago in a media interview. They are millennia old. I mean, you know, the, the Russian Orthodox Church, which still shapes the culture and sort of psychology of Russia and its leadership class to a great degree. I mean, the whole identity of the Russian Orthodox Church is around the idea of Moscow being the third Rome, right? I mean, there was the original Rome, then there was the second Rome of Constantinople and Byzantium, and now Moscow as the sort of guarantor and the bulwark of true authentic Christianity, the idea being that the original Rome has been corrupted. I mean, 
Read Dostoevsky, arguably the greatest Russian novelist of all time, and they've produced some of the greatest writers in human history. Dostoevsky in his novel, The Idiot, the central character in that novel at one point goes on a diatribe when he hears that an acquaintance of his has converted to Roman Catholicism under the influence of a Jesuit priest. And the character says that Catholicism is actually worse than atheism. Said atheism just proposes a zero, says God doesn't exist. Catholicism is worse than that because it proposes a corrupted and debased Christ. That the popes have sold out Christianity and have sold out Christ for worldly wealth and power. And that Roman Catholicism is therefore an abomination. It's the Antichrist. That's the language he uses. Rome is the Antichrist. The thing of it is, this is presented as a kind of commonplace observation that should be obvious to anyone with eyes to see. Now, of course, that was the 19th century. It was before the modern ecumenical movement. A great deal has changed. But I would point out that as recently as just within the last few years, influential Russian Orthodox intellectuals were arguing that Rome is the perpetual enemy of Moscow, citing several historical stages, one being the creation of the so-called Uniate churches, that is the Eastern Rite churches in the 15th and 16th centuries, second being the Crimean War and the way that the Catholic powers actually lined up with the Ottoman Empire against Imperial Russia in that war, which Orthodox intellectuals see as part of the West's ongoing hostility to Russia. Third, they cite the Bolshevik Revolution, which they believe Catholics tried to exploit to expand their toehold inside Russia. Fourth, they cite the modern ecumenical movement, which they think is a Trojan horse designed to bring Moscow through a back door under papal control. All right, now I'm not saying that is every Russian Orthodox believer, but these are widespread attitudes and convictions among the intelligentsia, particularly the more traditional or conservative intelligentsia of the Russian Orthodox Church, which of course has disproportionate influence on Vladimir Putin and his retinue. So my point is, if your worldview is that Rome, the popes, the Vatican are the eternal enemies of Russia, and that that sort of rivalry has roots that go back more than a millennium, right? If that's how you see things, then I don't think any offer of fair play and neutrality from a pope or the Vatican is likely to convince you, right? And therefore, I, I guess, you know, the, the, the takeaway from all of this is to say, Francis's effort to be a peacemaker here and to be a mediator, they are noble and commendable, completely in keeping with his calling and also the social gospel of the church. How realistic it is that the Pope is going to be able to realize this dream, on the other hand, you know, that's a whole different conversation because it doesn't depend just on him. You know, if it takes two to tango, it also takes two to make peace. And we're going to have to see how available, how willing the Russians may be to reciprocate the Pope's outstretched hand. All right, finally this week, a one-of-a-kind woman. So the Jesuits in 2021 created a commission to study the role of women in the society. 
And during a recent year-in briefing with the press, the Jesuit Superior General, Venezuelan Father Arthur Sosa, said that this commission is continuing to do its work. It's going to be carrying out a major survey next year, so 2023, of Jesuit apostolates and institutions all over the world to figure out what women are already doing. And then it's supposed to make recommendations for deepening, expanding, expanding, broadening, whatever the role of women in 2024. Now, as this work unfolds, you know, the question is, are the Jesuits not just going to be looking forward, but will they also look backward? That is, will they look back at the history of roles women have played in the society over the centuries? And if they do, are they going to be considering what is arguably the most remarkable story of a, a role for a woman in the society of Jesus? which is the story of history's lone female Jesuit. Return with me now to those heady days of the 16th century. The Society of Jesus was formed by St. Ignatius of Loyola and his companions in the year 1540. Now, at the time, Ignatius was given approval by Pope Paul III, who also thought it would be a nice idea if the Jesuits had a female branch. So he encouraged Ignatius to allow three women to sort of take initial, not quite vows, but to become, in effect, the beginnings of a women's branch of the Jesuits. And that happened in 1545, so five years after the formation of the society. Ignatius, however, was never sold. He thought in the 16th century it would be impossible for women to exercise the complete availability for ministry that he thought was essential to the Jesuit vocation. So within a year, he got Pope Paul III to dispense the promises these women had made. And a year after that, he got the Pope to issue a bull saying they will never be a women's branch of the Society of Jesus. So Ignatius thought at that point the question was settled. Flash forward, however, just a few more years to 1552. Juana of Austria, who was a member of the Habsburg dynasty in Europe, is married at the age of 17 to a member of the royal family in Portugal, and she quickly becomes the mother of Portugal's future king. A couple years after that, she also becomes the regent of Spain, that is, the de facto ruler of Spain for a number of years. And at the same time, by all accounts, Juana is a deeply pious Catholic young woman, in fact, so deep was her piety that she took an active interest in combating Lutheranism on the Iberian Peninsula. We know at one stage she personally presided over an auto da fe in which 13 heretics, that is, guys, people interested in Lutheranism, were executed. Others were subjected to various punishments. And so she becomes very interested in this new religious community, the Jesuits. She personally befriends Francis Borgia, who would, of course, go on to become St. Francis Borgia and the third superior general of the Jesuits at the time. He is the grandee of Spain, and so a, a member of the Spanish royal court, therefore very close to Juana as the regent. She tells Francis Borgia that she wants to be a Jesuit. Now, this creates what the English would call a bit of a sticky wicket for Ignatius, because on the one hand, of course, he is against having female Jesuits. 
On the other, this isn't just any woman, right? This is the mother of the Portuguese monarch and de facto the ruler of Spain. The Jesuits need her support badly for the expansion of the society and to consolidate their gains in Europe. And so he can't just, like basically this was an offer Ignatius couldn't refuse, right, if I can cite the godfather. And so the solution they came up with is that they allowed Juana of Austria to pronounce the same vows that all Jesuits take, and she became basically a permanent scholastic. You know, being a scholastic is a stage in Jesuit formation. It's after you've been a novice. It's after you've taken your first vows, but it's before ordination, right? For most Jesuits who are on the path to priesthood, that stage of being a scholastic can last four, five, six years, something like that. For Juana, it was the rest of her life. But scholastics are considered full members of the Society of Jesus, and so was she. Now, Ignatius was so sort of obsessed with secrecy about this that in all written documentation, Juana's name was never used. She was given a, a code name of Mateo. And she was also prohibited from changing her lifestyle in any way that would betray or betoken her new status. Nevertheless, both she and the Jesuit leadership took her identity as a Jesuit very seriously. Although, it must be said, she had a somewhat idiosyncratic understanding of the vow of obedience because correspondence for the rest of her life clearly shows that she was trying to give orders to both Borgia and Ignatius rather than taking them. But nevertheless, you know, she went to her death as a Jesuit. And basically every historian who has looked at this would say, that although it was idiosyncratic, it was singular, it was one of a kind, nevertheless, she clearly was a Jesuit. Not a priest, but a Jesuit. And so, as the Jesuits consider the role of women in the society, it might be worth dusting off this precedent from the very roots of the order and seeing if it still has any gas left in the tank. All right, that is our show for this week. You can find full coverage of all of these stories on the Crux site. That is cruxnow.com, cruxnow.com, your one-stop shopping destination for the very best in smart, wired, and independent commentary. As I said at the top of the show, have a merry, happy, and blessed Christmas, and we will talk to you again next Tuesday. In the meantime, stay safe, stay healthy, have a fantastic week. We will talk to you again very soon.